Welcome to Imaginal Inspirations with me, David Lorimer. This is a podcast in which I ask my guests about experiences, people, and books that have inspired their life and work. My guest today is Professor Marilyn Schlitz. She is sitting in her house in California. Um, And I'm just going to tell you a little bit about her before we start our conversation. And she has a background in philosophy, psychology, parapsychology, anthropology, and the social sciences. So very broad background. Currently, she's a professor at the Department of Psychology in Sofia University. And and, uh, she's actually studying for an MBA after all the other degrees that she's got. And she's a visiting scholar in the Department of Family Medicine and Public Health, University of California, San Diego. And uh, she was director of the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology Foundation until quite recently. Uh, She's also on the board of directors of the Ryan Research Center. And uh, she had quite a long career with the Institute of Noetic Sciences, IONS, where she's now a senior fellow and president emeritus, having been president um, previously. She has a long list of publications, books, and articles, and and the recent ones include Death Makes Life Possible, Revolutionary Insights on Living, Dying, and the Continuation of Consciousness, and Worldview Explorations, um, which is a facilitator guide and workbook, and then Living Deeply, The Art and Science of Transformation. Isn't this what life's all about? And uh, she's also got some fairly recent films and media, Graceful Aging Program, Living a Noetic Life, an audio series on grief and transformation, and the Death Makes Life Possible documentary. So uh, you can see that Marilyn has um, a very long list of achievements um, to her name. Uh, And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the experiences that have shaped her and her work. And the first question I'd like to to ask you, Marilyn, is um, about a shaping moment involving your your choice of work, uh, what what would that have been? Well, I grew up in a very challenging time in a difficult situation. Uh, I was in Detroit, Michigan at the time when we had the uprisings that were defined by race, but also by gender and class. And uh, it was it was very formative. And I remember feeling a lot of pain, like how can we fix this? What could we do? And as a teenager, I was pretty impotent to do anything more than act out and engage my anger rather than my productive thinking. And I, uh, in that process, uh, was somewhere I shouldn't have been, was somebody I shouldn't have been with on the back of a motorcycle at closing time of the bar. And we were struck by a drunk driver And that moment was pretty catalytic, I would say, in in two ways. One, uh, I had a very visceral out-of-body experience when my body was thrown off the motorcycle and tumbled through the air, and I was able to watch it from a distant vantage point. And then thud, I landed on the, the ground and... Uh, it was quite a, a deal. They, you know, rushed me to the hospital, 66 stitches in my leg. Some talk about amputation. Mm. And they put me in a cast from my hip to my ankle, sent me home with the possibility that I might come back and they would remove half of my leg. 
And I remember laying on my family's couch in the living room and my dad was a tool and die maker. My mom was a, a housewife. So I didn't come from a medical background. So I'm not really sure where this idea came from, but there was this thought in my mind that if I could harness my imagination and target my immune system, that I could heal. Hmm. And I did that. I laid there and I visualized and, uh, and I could feel the little tingles up my leg. A week later, went back to the hospital. It wasn't like it was a remarkable recovery, but I still have, you know, two firm legs to stand on. And that was really a decisive moment. And I would say I learned two things from that. One is that consciousness may be more than the physical and that this idea of this out-of-body experience really gave me a sense of some deeper, wider range of possibility. And then that we could use our consciousness to facilitate our own healing. And I think both of those things really informed me in ways that led me on a, a particular journey. So interesting, because obviously that's a, a formative experience in the true sense of the word. Uh, and that you, you came out with really some key insights um, that you wouldn't have had if you hadn't had that experience. That's, that's certainly very, very powerful, Marilyn. And then in terms of, um, uh, of mentors, can, can you tell us something about a, an influential mentor that you had and, and what advice they, they gave you, if any? You know, I've been gifted with a number of teachers and advisors and, and friends who have been very uh, informative for me. Probably, you know, all the way through my lower level school, there were teachers who encouraged me. Uh, sometimes in ways that I think, you know, they were pulling their hair out to say, you know, you're a leader, start leading in a positive direction. And, you know, that never occurred to me. I would look behind me and see that there were people watching what I was doing, but I was really not uh, motivated to be the, the head of the class. It was more like, where's the next party? And then when I got into college at Wayne State University in Detroit, I met a couple of people there. There was a, a professor, a Robin Baracco, who was uh, a neurophysiologist at the medical school. And he was really probably the first person to just say to me, you know, you're brilliant, do something with it. And I was like, oh, well, I never thought about that. And so he was really important to me. And then there were really two books that profoundly impacted me at that time. The first was Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolution. Mm. And that book said to me that, you know, we live in a paradigm, we're informed by a worldview, and that it's not fixed or absolute. And that throughout history, you know, even in the hallowed halls of science, these worldviews have shifted and changed fundamentally. And with it, our whole model of reality. And that said to me that all that suffering I'd experienced in Detroit and that impotence might not be permanent. Maybe there's something we could do to facilitate a paradigm shift. So that really triggered my imagination about what might be possible. And then I uh, found, and Robin Morocco actually was the person who gave me the book, Psychic Exploration, uh, by the Apollo astronaut Edgar Mitchell. But that book was, you know, a set of essays by scientists and philosophers and scholars, smart people who were dedicated to the idea of understanding these human potentials and really the paradigm 
uh, of something new. And that really was the beginnings for me of an odyssey that brought me to where I am today. Yes, absolutely. Could you could you maybe say a little bit more about Ed uh, as, a, as a person uh, and also perhaps about Willis Harmon, because he, he must have had a, an influence on you as well. I'd be delighted. Well, Edgar, I really didn't meet him until after, oh, it would have been probably 15 years later. And uh, I was at a meeting at the National Institutes of Health when the Office of Alternative and Complementary Medicine was just being set up. And I had been invited to be a consultant for that. And I met Wink Franklin. And he was the executive director at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And I uh, had an opportunity to talk to him and he invited me to come out to uh, visit. I was coming to California anyway. I was living in Texas at the time and finishing up my PhD at the University of Texas. And I'd been given a fellowship at Stanford. And so I was going to be coming to California and Wink invited me to come and, and visit them. And so that was really the first time I had a direct contact with the Institute of Noetic Sciences and with Wink and then with Willis Harmon. And Willis, just such a beautiful human being and major scholar, huge thinker, a great heart. And I remember getting a cold and I was like sniveling and coughing and, and Willis is like, can I get you a cup of tea? And I'm like, well, I felt a little odd, you know, here's this eminent scientist scholar and he's like, no, no, I'll get it for you. And he went downstairs and he came back and he brought me this cup of tea. And there was just this gesture of kindness in the midst of all of his, you know, mental prowess and sophistication. And, and that really moved me. And I would say those two, seeing them work together inspired me about leadership and, and gave me a glimpse of what powerful leadership looked like. You know, they worked together beautifully. They never undermined each other. They were friends and they were supporters of each other. So that was beautiful. And I learned a tremendous amount during that. And then, of course, you know, Edgar Mitchell was the founder of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. So it was shortly after that I had the chance to meet him. And again, here was a person who enormous successes, really radical thinking and kindness exuded from him and always, always supportive. So whenever we were doing research and we were reporting our findings at board meetings, Edgar was the first person to get up and say, this is why I started this organization. And just to be grateful and appreciative. So, you know, Edgar's story is that he had been trained as an MIT engineer, was in the Navy as a test pilot had been selected for the Apollo program, had the opportunity to actually go to the moon, walk on the moon, and then describe having the window seat on the way home. And they did what they called the barbecue rotation, which is as they re-entered the Earth's atmosphere, they rotated. And so he was able to watch the, the Earth, the sun, the moon, rising and setting and rising and setting. And, you know, he had that vision of the whole planet Earth, something we've all kind of habituated to now, but it was new and it was fresh and it was exciting. And, and he looked down at planet Earth and he had an epiphany, which was, it was a whole system and there were no divisions. There was no 
you know, national boundaries. There were no state boundaries, gender boundaries, race boundaries. None of that existed. And it was in that moment he had a kind of um, experience of suffering, I would say. And he recognized that the pain we experience on planet Earth isn't the result of planet Earth. It's the result of us as human beings creating these situations. And I think that in that moment, he really became dedicated to understanding how we can grapple with our own consciousness and our own worldviews. And then he had a second aspect of his epiphany, uh, which was this kind of fundamental interconnectedness. He somehow recognized that the molecules in his body, the molecules in the bodies of his co-astronauts there in that hurtling little metal chamber were fundamentally interconnected and that they were part of, you know, the creation from the time of the Big Bang. And so instead of feeling this kind of objective stance toward a world out there, he had this glimpse of something that united all of us, connected us. And so when he came back to planet Earth, he was a celebrity. He had huge cachet and was able to meet a lot of people and to learn a lot of things. And, you know, he had never been trained in mysticism. Uh, He was a very brass tacks kind of astronaut and Navy pilot. But he suddenly began to think about his experience as like a samadhi experience and that perhaps there was something, again, about our consciousness that could help to heal that suffering and bring us together in some fundamental way. And that's what he did. He created the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He created his own uh, program in Florida where he was looking at quantum holography. And uh, again, I just want to say he like Wink, like Willis, had the full package. They were brilliant human beings who had enormous hearts and a tremendous commitment to the well-being of our planet. Yes, I couldn't agree more, Marilyn, because I I knew all three of them. Um, The last time I saw Ed, we were both speaking at a conference in Bruges, and so it was just lovely to spend a bit of time with him. And then Willis, um, one of the last times I saw him before he died, uh, was at a conference on consciousness, which you may have been at, in Uxmal in Mexico. And I asked him what he was working on. Of course, it was epistemology, it was the metaphysical foundations of modern science. And in that respect, he, he, he used to say, and this, this came from Richard Feynman, that, that philosophy of science is to scientists what ornithology is to birds. And, and I still think it's unfortunately true. So you, you've actually already talked about a couple of influential books, um, which is going to be my next question. But I don't know whether there's any other book that you'd like to add uh, to those you've already mentioned. Well, I'm a big fiction reader. I, uh, I really don't end a day without having read a novel. And so there've been a lot of very influential writers. There's there's something about fiction for me, good fiction, you know, literature that is transporting and transforming. And the book that immediately pops in my head is Alice Walker's The Temple of My Familiar. And I was studying in the West Indies. I was doing my um, my PhD in anthropology and so I was studying healers. And I had done all these interviews with the elders in the community and and what were the changes they'd perceived. And 
You know, there were a lot of magical healers uh, and there were a lot of people who had experience with the bush medicines and traditional healing and on the plane going home and I was reading Temple of My Familiar and I felt like I was in that book. I felt mm-hmm. like the people I had just interviewed were those characters. And so there was something about, you know, my lived experience reflected in this fiction that to this day, I, I love that book. And I've had the chance to meet Alice Walker a couple of times. And I was really grateful to her. And she was appreciative of learning that. <laughs> really, really interesting. And then moving on, I think you've already given us one experience, obviously, that shaped your your, your work. Uh, but may, maybe there's a, there's another one. I, I was looking to see a key moment of insight in your work in relation to the nature of consciousness. And of course, your motorcycle accident is exactly that. But is there anything else that you would like to add? You know, David, it's hard to pull out one thing. Mm. Um, when one has spent lots of decades doing this kind of stuff. I, uh, I recall a couple of moments, you know, when I was working in parapsychology, for example, uh, where one of the first remote viewing experiments I did, and I was the viewer, and we got very powerful results. And I remember, um, you know, we'd just done the data analysis and I remember being deeply disturbed by the experience. Um, It was okay to be a scientist and study other people. It wasn't okay that it was me. You know, that sense has passed and I've kind of integrated a lot of these experiences, but I was taught about the objective approach and I was separate from the object of my inquiry. and, And for this study to show that this was something about me was very destabilizing. Mm. In time, it's, you know, you begin to integrate these experiences. But at that moment, it was it was disturbing. And how, do, how does your understanding of consciousness in general affect the way you, you live day to day? But part of that answer may be through your film, Death Makes Life Possible, where, where the perspective of, of knowing that we are here for a limited time, um, it has a powerful catalytic effect if you really take the message on board. Yeah, so true. And the things I learned from people as a result of doing some of these imaginative projects, so making the film that I did with Deepak Chopra, interviewing these masters from world traditions and learning from them about what is their worldview, what is their belief system. Uh, Edgar Mitchell was one of the people we interviewed. And, you know, his philosophy was it's really less about what happens after we die and much more about how we live today. And I would say my, my life, my career, without intending to be a do-gooder, you know, it's not about I'm going to save the world, but it is a little bit about that. It's about giving insight through the lens of these different religions, belief systems, worldviews that allow us to distill some, some philosophies. You know, maybe one of my major understandings is that uh, this idea of pluralism is so profound and so deep and at this moment, so ruptured. Mm -hmm. You know, people are so living in these polarized worldviews and conflict and disrespect for others. And what I learned from talking with people from a Catholic priest to a pagan witch 
to uh, the Dalai Lama. You know, I've had a really beautiful run of experiences with very gifted teachers. And what I've learned is this idea of diversity. So that is a demographic fact. We're lots of differences and that manifests in different forms. But there's also this notion of pluralism. And pluralism really comes from the celebration of these differences. And so how is it that we can learn and respect and appreciate what is different from ourselves? And I think sometimes that's really, really hard. And so how do we practice a way of engagement that gives us those those virtues, the sense of gratitude and forgiveness and compassion? Yes, indeed. And, and I think you know, in our time this year, in 2020, we're, we're also seeing you know, a huge undermining of freedom of expression, freedom of speech. One of the books I've been reading is Voltaire's Treaty on Tolerance, which came out in 1763. And he was one of the first public intellectuals you know, to risk his life, actually, or risk being put in prison. But our freedom of expression is something that we really need to know hold on to and uphold well one of the things you know in the death makes life possible project i learned uh, was about terror management theory and it's very clear that when we get confronted with our own mortality and we are destabilized if we're not given little primes in ways that support our self-esteem or enhance our sense of well-being lead us to authoritarianism. And I think that's a really important insight right now because with you know coronavirus and with all of the various challenges, people are confronted with mortality, very you know in our face, on the news all the time. And so it kind of makes sense what's happening right now in that people are insecure, job stability is being threatened. Somebody told me yesterday about this, this uh, little study that was done where they took black ants and red ants, put them in a jar, and they were able to sort of build their little worlds together. And then somebody took the jar and shook it up, oh, and yeah. they started warring with each other. That's what we're living in is this jar, and we're getting shook up, and there's nobody there to really, a few of us are there. And I think, you know, what you're doing, David, it has always been an inspiration. There are some who are trying to heal and and find that balance again. But by and large, there's a lot of disruption and a lot of uh, volatility. So I think, you know, that's a really interesting, if nothing else, a metaphor for what's happening. We're getting shook up. We don't have the boundary conditions to really help us stabilize. And it's really our calling to help provide some of those insights. Absolutely. And, and inspiration. It, it reminds me of a lecture I heard by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in London about 25 years ago. And she said in her German accent, you know, we are all put through the ringer of life. And we either come out crushed or polished. And, uh, and there's an element of sort of the, the, the collective experience that we're going through. And I sometimes when I'm talking about that story, I say, well, maybe crushed, then polished, because sometimes you have a short term crushing from an experience, but you come out you know, wiser and polished after a certain time. Well, when we did the Living Deeply project and looked at the, the transformative experience 
So we were looking at masters of transformation and how is it that we can fundamentally shift who we are and how we understand our place in the world. And the main factor that triggers these transformations is not 100%, but by and large, pain, some kind of suffering, some destabilization. And so in the context of that, we're living in the perfect moment for us to be able to grow and flourish in new ways. No, very much. I, I, I very much agree with that. It's a tension and pressure which brings about change, tension on the inside and pressure on the outside. We're drawing to a close now, so I just wanted to ask you whether there's any proverb or quote that you would live by or that you're inspired by. Um, I, I have stacks of quotations, and I know that Larry Dossie won't have a problem with this because I think, believe he's writing a book about quotations. It'll be a difficult for him to choose one. Oh, I wish I had a quick quote about from Larry Dossie. Larry talks about um, how, you know, love is that force that pulls us and reforms us and uh, ultimately heals us. And that's not a direct quote, but it's pretty close. So I guess I'm going to quote Larry Dossie. Very nice. He'll, he'll, be, he'll be delighted. <laughs> and then finally, uh, Marilyn, would you have any advice to give to your younger self from what you've learned and where you've got to now? You know, I've had such a great run uh, and made some choices that there have been moments when I wondered why I made those choices versus others. One thing is I didn't choose a mainstream route. And I know that when I was first starting out exploring consciousness, being paid $400 a month, that was when I was at the Rhine Center in like 1979. And my mother, she was just baffled. <laughs> and, you know, like I said, I grew up in Detroit. My family were not academics. They were not innovators. You know, they were Midwesterners. And I had been offered a job working at an insurance company that was going to pay me about 10 times more than I was making. And I just stayed the course. And there have been times when I looked back and I thought, you know, maybe I should have just really focused on being a mainstream academic. It comes with all the benefits of, you know, legitimacy and financial reward. But I didn't do that. I ended up really staying with this you know, renegade thinking, and it has served me well. So I guess my younger self might say, you did good there. That was a good choice. Yes, I, I can very much resonate with that. <clears throat> um, because I think that you have a sense of whether you're on track at a deep, deeper level. And, and, and you, you really have to make those choices if you're coming from that, that deeper level. And those are the shaping ones. And then you look back and say, yes, that was just the thing that I should have been doing. I, I'm not a merchant banker, speaking for myself. I made exactly the right decision to leave merchant banking and then move into the area that we've, we've shared. So, Marilyn, And I'm glad for that, David. I'm glad for one of the things that gives me the greatest solace is the, the fraternity of like-minded people who are on the same track and who, who support one another. And I'm grateful for that. No, very much. And I, I'd like to thank you as well, really, for, for sharing you know, your insights and wisdom. And I'm, I'm sure people will get a lot out of them. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you, David. Great to see you.